After serving on Wayne Taylor's pastoral staff at Calvary Fellowship in Seattle for seven years, he asked me to address a special session at a, uh, at a pastor's conference here in the Northwest for assistant pastors. And he had entitled the message that I was to bring, Assisting Well. And he told me, he said, of all the people that he had worked with over his many years, that no one had served better in that role than me. And of course, you know, that's something anyone would like to hear. But being skeptical in nature, I'm wondering, is he having a hard time finding someone to teach this class and he's trying to butter me up but I quickly realized I had no reason to doubt his sincerity and I just I just enjoyed that commendation from him all of us I'm sure can think of an instance when we were verbally affirmed with a well done good job hopefully few can relate to B.B. King's lament when he sang Nobody loves me but my mama, and she could be jiving me too. (laughs) (laughs) Come and got to not get him back here. Come on, we want it. Oh. Okay, I'm afraid you'll have to crane your neck a little bit, but that's what you're supposed to be saying on the main screen. Maybe you all just turn your chairs around. Oh, oh! Maybe, Maybe the Lord just doesn't like anybody dissing their mama. Nobody loves me but my mama, and she could be jiving me too. Surely you can think of a time when someone has affirmed you, and the more you admire or respect that person, the more precious their commendation. In today's passage, Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God himself, second person of the Godhead, pays tribute to John the Baptist. Let's see what made John more than a prophet, as Jesus said, and how he can be more than a prophet to us, encouraging our relationship with Jesus, King of the universe. That's a term the Jews often used in describing God, King of the universe. Savior of the world, that's how the Samaritans describe Jesus. We know him as lover of our souls. Matthew chapter 11. And it came about that when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. If you've been following with us, you know that Jesus has coupled up the 12 disciples into six groups, and they're to go out into the cities um, They're in the Galilee, northern part of Israel, and um, he has empowered them to do what he's been doing with his healing and casting out demons and raising the dead. And he said, and your message is this, 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that's your ministry. You go. And so he's, he's kind of commissioned them, gave them instructions, and they, they've gone out, they've departed, and he, he's kind of coming up and after them and following up in person. Now, verse 2, when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, his disciples, this John the Baptist's followers, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. John the Baptist's finest hour. When was his finest hour? The moment he pointed to Jesus coming to be baptized. And what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. That was his finest hour. That was in John 1.29. A few verses later, he refers to him as the Son of God. So John had that kind of faith. And he's trying to inspire others by pointing to Jesus. But John, along with many of the devout Jews, had an imperfect understanding of God's timetable. They believed that when the Messiah came, he would immediately set up his visible kingdom on the earth and reestablish them as his favored nation. The ones with whom he had made that covenant. You will be my people, I will be your God that through them, all the families of the earth would be blessed. But now John, he's been languishing in prison for calling sin, sin. That's what prophets do. I'm glad I'm not a prophet. I mean, the, the calling and office of a pastor does include calling sin, sin, but uh, I, I like the idea of being a shepherd that leads sheep into green pastures by still waters and just encouraging and nurturing the flock in all ways. Prophet's job was a tough one and a thankless one and often got them murdered. Exhibit A, John the Baptist. So he's languishing there in prison. And he's beginning to wonder, what's taking Jesus so long? Are you the expected one? Or should we be looking for someone else? Matthew Henry writes, where there is true faith, yet there may be a mixture of unbelief. You remember the man who came to Jesus to, for healing? For his son. And, and, and he, he, he asked the man, do you, do you believe I can do this? He said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Many of us, that's, that's where we live. Right? 
Where there is true faith, yet there may be a mixture of unbelief. John the Baptist, that great man of faith, had some honest doubts. And Jesus moves to to relieve him of those doubts with the words to his John's followers. Tell him what you hear and see. He then strengthens John's faith by giving him the word of God. And where does faith even come from? Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So he's giving him the word of God. He's quoting from Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 29 and from chapter 35. This is the word of God. Isaiah lived seven centuries before Jesus. So he's giving John this quote, citing the things that the Messiah would do. Verse 5, The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lovers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now the things that Isaiah said, be on the lookout for these things. When someone comes doing these things, you'll know he's in your midst. The Messiah, Savior of the world. And then he adds this gentle admonition, blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. In other words, he's he's telling John, be patient. Keep on believing. Even if I'm not accomplishing currently all that I shall accomplish. Again, he had in his mind just this this one-time visit where the Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom on the earth. But it was a two-part affair, as Jesus makes very clear. In his conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, 17, this is right after the famous John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And then he tells Nicodemus, for God did not send the world, uh, the son into the world the first time to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He is coming again to judge the world, but not the first time. When he comes again, it will be as a conquering king. He will right all wrongs, and he will establish his millennial reign on a renewed earth. But in the meantime, he is the sacrificial Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's, it's, it's clearly spoken of in the Old Testament. The prophets understood. In Isaiah 53, really, if you haven't read that in a while, take the time. Because he clearly depicts the Messiah as the suffering servant. The one who would bear our sin so that we would become acceptable. It's all there in the Old Testament, but they didn't actually emphasize that because that didn't make them feel so good. And they would take all those talking about him coming in power and glory to vanquish every foe, every idea raised up against the knowledge of God and establish his kingdom because he can, because he is almighty Both were there, but they didn't understand it was a two-part 
ministry of Jesus, he clearly tells Nicodemus, I'm not here to judge the world. I'm here to save the world. But other scriptures will be fulfilled when he comes the second time. And now, even though John the Baptist has been having some honest second thoughts about Jesus, Jesus publicly affirms the ministry of John the Baptist. Verse 7, And as these were going away, again, these are the disciples of John the Baptist, his followers who had brought this message. As they were going away, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? Now, when John came on the scene, he was a rough-looking character who wore camel's hair and he had a leather belt and he was, you know, big beard, lots of hair. He's a hairy guy. And he, and he ate honey and locusts. And, I mean, he was a sensation. Not just because of this, what was going on with his diet and the visual effect, but the fact that he was clearly calling people to get ready. The Messiah is coming. Make that path straight to your heart. you got to repent of your sin, your waywardness, your selfishness, all your selfish ambition. And, and people were coming to him in droves from all over Israel. And he's asking, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? He didn't come into the city. They had to go to him. What did you come to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you, why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes. I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. And now he quotes from Malachi. That's the last book in the Old Testament. The prophet Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. And this is the father speaking to the son. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I was talking with people in our children's ministry earlier about how Jesus continually blew the disciples' minds saying things like this, and they're just going, what is that about? John the Baptist was not a reed shaken by the wind. He was the wind that shook the hearts of kings. (laughs) Herod Antipas was one such king. This is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the Herod that was so paranoid, he slew all the children of Bethlehem, afraid that 
as the scripture proclaimed, a king would come from Bethlehem. That's how, that's how he was totally paranoid. Herod Antipas is one of his sons who, when Herod the Great died, his, his kingdom, now he, they're under Rome, but they, Rome allowed a certain amount of local uh, governance. And so Herod the Great, his kingdom was divided up among his sons. Herod Antipas got Galilee there to the north in, in Israel and Perea, just east of the Jordan River there between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Those were his areas of governance. But he had a palace also in uh, Jerusalem. Herod Antipas paid a visit to his brother in Rome and seduced his brother's wife. These were not moral people. And then when he got back to Israel, he dismissed his wife and married his sister-in-law. John the Baptist said, it's not right publicly. In all of his media outlets, he goes on and says, it's not right for you to have your brother's wife. And what did Herod do? He threw him in jail. That's how John ended up in prison. To give you a bit of a geographical context, Jesus, his ministry is, is centered up here in Capernaum. That's at the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. That, that's where Peter and Andrew lived. That's where James and John lived. They were fishermen there. Um, John is in prison da down in Machaerus. And here's a artistic rendering of what it would have looked like at the time of Christ. Um, he's in the prison here. When we were in Israel earlier this year, we went to the top of Masada. Go back to that other sign for a moment. Here's Masada. Masada and Machaerus were two of five fortresses that Herod the Great built because of his great paranoia assuming that if his life is threatened, he can run to one of these fortresses. And our uh, next slide, our tour guide, Mickey, told us that there's no evidence that Herod the Great ever visited this fortress at Masada. And yet it was, it was amazing. We saw the runes of it. You can't see it in this picture, but uh, the runes and the foundations and an amazing palace, the tiered palace that he made on the north end of this high mountain. But from here, you can look to the east and you see the Dead Sea and right beyond it, the fortress of Machaerus. This is where Herod Antipas, Herod the great son, imprisoned John the Baptist because he could, because he had the power to do that. Even so, in Mark chapter 6, verse 20, we learn that King Herod was afraid of John. John's sequestered there in his prison at Machaerus, and yet he's afraid of John knowing he was a righteous and holy man. It unsettled him. John, on the other hand, was not afraid of Herod or his troops. He was God's prophet calling sin, sin, wherever he found it, which 
which made even a king's heart shake like a reed. Jesus goes on to say in verse 9 that John was more than a prophet. How can a prophet be more than a prophet? In this sense, all of the prophets spoke about a future king, a coming king, a savior, a deliverer. But John the, the Baptist, he famously pointed to Jesus in the flesh and said, here he is. Behold the Lamb of God. Of all those born of women, verse 11, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist for the simple reason that he was the forerunner of Jesus to pinpoint him in the flesh. He was that voice in the wilderness that the Old Testament prophets talked about, crying out, get ready. Examine your hearts. Isn't it? Socrates said that the unexamined heart, life isn't worth living. So he, John's just saying, get ready. Examine your hearts. Pay attention to God. Because once this brief life is over, you will come face to face with the great judge. And where will you live out eternity? I mean, he's just saying, let's, let's be real here. Let's be reasonable. Isn't it God who says, come let us reason together, though your sins are as scarlet, they, I'll make them white as snow? That's the Old Testament. That's God's heart. That's what he is about. That's what he desires to accomplish. So he sent this forerunner it was more than what we find in the Old Testament among the prophets. He's that voice in the wilderness. Turn from going your own way to going God's way because the king had arrived just as God had promised. It is he who will save us from our sins. His kingdom of peace and love shall reign forever. So look to him. Turn to him. Say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 94, I am yours, save me. The story is told of a young monk named Martin Luther, tormented by his inability to feel accepted by God, how he learned from Stoptes, his closest friend, to rely on Christ by quoting Psalm 119, Verse 94, stopped his. Martin, what is it that you seek? Luther, a merciful God, a God whom I can love, a God who, who loves me. Stopped his. Then look to Christ, bind yourself to Christ, and you will know God's love. Say to him, I am yours, save me. Luther, I am yours, save me. I am yours, save me. I am yours. Save me. Can we echo that thrice comment right now from Psalm 119, verse 95? For would you say with me to God, I am yours. Save me. 
I am yours, save me. I am yours, save me. You should memorize this verse. <laughs> I recommend it. What a great way to begin and end your day. Deliver me from sin, from unloving thoughts, words, and deeds that separate me from you and from others. Deliver me from my enemies who resent my affiliation with you. Deliver me from myself and my propensity to doubt your goodness, your, your power, and your love. Here I am. I'm yours. Save me. This was, in effect, the response that John the Baptist was looking for when he pointed to Jesus. Here's the Lamb of God. Look to him to deliver you. He was the first human to introduce the long-awaited Holy One. And what a privilege that was. And yet Jesus says, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Do you know what that means? That means that if you are not less than the least in the kingdom of heaven, you're greater than John the Baptist. Of course, you can't be less than the least, right? So it doesn't matter how weak you might feel as a believer, because you believe, God sees you as, as greater than John the Baptist. And, and how can that be? You might ask in, in this way. John the Baptist was not there to, to, to witness the veil in the temple being rent from top to bottom, 60 feet high, many ply. And then it's just Jesus, when he died on the cross, it said in the temple, that curtain, that heavy ply curtain, was rent from top to bottom. That curtain that separated the priest from the holy of holies, the ark, the, the, the presence of God, symbolizing that no longer is there any separation between God and man. John wasn't there for that. He wasn't there for the, for the, for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Lord would inspire Old Testament prophets coming upon them for a moment and, and, and strengthen them and give them words. But none of them ever received that invitation of the risen Savior. We read about in Revelation 3.20 where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'm going to come in and make my home in them. No Old Testament prophet knew that kind of relationship. None of the prophets ever had the spirit within them cry, Abba, Father. None ever had that indwelling affirmation that they were children of God, which is what John 1.12 says, 
we are, as many as received the risen Savior. To them, he gave the power and authority to become children of God. John didn't have that. And again, in that, in that sense, the weakest believer among us who has received Jesus and been granted the power to become children of God is greater than John who never knew Jesus in this life-giving, hope-filled way. And yet Jesus is not finished revealing the greatness of John. And we'll close with this. Verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And violent men take it by force. Think of Herod. He was a violent man. He had John the Baptist beheaded. Jesus, of course, was crucified. The apostles were nearly all martyred. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesy until John. And if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What did all the prophets and the law, that is the Old Testament, prophesy? That before the great and terrible day of the Lord, speaking of the second coming of Christ, Elijah would come again with the ministry of repentance. Malachi, the last prophet that speaks in the Old Testament. The Old Testament concludes with that, the words of Malachi. And this comes from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, talking about the great and terrible day of the Lord. In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, the angel tells Zacharias, Zacharias is the father of, of John the Baptist. But this, he, the, the angel is having this conversation with Zacharias before his son is, is even conceived. But he's telling him that his son would be at least a partial fulfillment of Malachi 4 5, coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. And that's why Jews today who celebrate Passover with the Passover meal, if they're Orthodox for, sh for sure, at their table, there will be an empty place, an empty seat with a, with a plate re ready to go. Who's that for? Elijah. Because they know he has to come before the revealing of the Christ. It's part of their ceremony. But wait a minute. As Jesus said, John the Baptist is only a partial fulfillment of Malachi 4.5. I'm pointing this out because the great and terrible day of the Lord mentioned there in Malachi 
is yet to come. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus. He said that he, Jesus, did not come the first time to judge the world. That's the task that he will accomplish at his second coming. But before he comes again, Elijah will come again in bodily form during what the Bible calls, what Jesus calls the Great Tribulation. In Matthew 24. It's a seven-year period. After the church has been caught up, it says to meet him in the clouds, there will be a seven-year period where the Antichrist comes into power. But there will also be two witnesses discussed in Revelation chapter 11. And one of these witnesses has the power to stop up the heavens so that it doesn't rain and to bring fire from heaven. Anybody that knows of Elijah... Our ninth century BC prophet knows that that's his signature move. It's a clear reference to the coming of the Messiah, or I should say Elijah, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Because at the end of that seven year period, Jesus comes again. And he's not alone, he has with him. An army of saints dressed in white, those who have been washed and cleansed through his sacrifice. He's talking about the saints, those that were caught up, those that have gone before us, those like Abraham, who believed God and God accounted that as righteousness. We're all with him. He, as I said, he writes all wrongs and he establishes his millennial kingdom. But a millennium is only a thousand years. I'm not banking on just a thousand years. <laughs> the end of the thousand years, the Bible says, Jesus lets entropy take its course. He says that he rolls up the earth and the cosmos, this created universe, like an old garment. And he discards it. And he makes a new heaven. And a new earth. And a new Jerusalem. There the gates of that city are never closed. There in the middle is the tree of life. There at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the destiny of the weakest believer. I get goosebumps <laughs> just thinking about it. Don't ever forget it. Man, we've come through a pandemic. That's hard. And a lot of people have lost hope just in life. And they become insular. But not us. We, we must not. We need a touch of John the Baptist. It, or David. So what can man do to me? God is for me. God is with me. God is, the believers can say, God is in me. He has made his home in me. I am an eternal being. He has 
put eternity in my heart. That's what Ezekiel said. Eternity in my heart. So now I, I live with this great expectation. It's a game changer. It changes the way that we live here and now. The Savior of the world has come. His forerunner, John the Baptist, has come in the spirit and, Eli and power of Elijah. It's part one. We've read about it here. And they will come again. And, you, and, and get this. I believe that those two witnesses, there that, that live within that great tribulation period, are alive today. I believe we're that close. Jesus says, when you see Israel uh, reborn, the olive tree revived, which happened May 14, 1948, after being dormant for almost 2,000 years. No other nation has done anything remotely close to that. When you see the olive tree revived, know that I am at the door and summer is nigh. We don't know the time of his, the day or the hour, but we know the signs of the seasons. It says, when the love of many is waxed cold. When there is tremendous opposition to God and in Christ and his word. We're seeing that like never before. And at the end is near. So we know that he is coming again as promised. Therefore, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's take this message seriously. Let's take it to heart and respond. Let's say with Luther, Luther I am yours. Save me. Use me. Be glorified in me. If you care to accept it. And, and this is you know, a choice that we make. We can accept this or not. He says, if you care to accept it, John the Baptist will be an Elijah to us this morning. Pointing to Jesus Christ, saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, trust in him. Bind Christ to yourself and you will know the love of God has stopped his toll. That young Martin Luther. And say with Luther, I am your save me. Preparing our hearts to receive our king that he might reign there every day. Amen? Praise the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for this. Your word, the oracles of God, preserved, really received and preserved by the nation Israel. Thank you for the nation Israel. We pray for the blessing of Jerusalem. But for a season, your word says that 
They have been set aside. As the church, those who have received the new covenant live and breathe and move and have our being. Again, help us now to, to just trust in you in a way that would set us free and to strengthen us to be the light in this present darkness, to occupy until you come. We have a destiny. We are people of destiny. But we need you. I pray you would spark faith in us, that you would fuel faith in us to be your faithful witnesses. And if there are any here listening to my voice that have not opened your heart to Christ, do it now. I'm convinced that is why you are hearing my voice. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ who would say, I believe, help my unbelief. I would point to, the, to Jesus and the work of Christ as he did to John the Baptist's disciples. No one did what he did. He was the healer of broken bodies. He was the one who cast out unclean spirits. He was the one who raised the dead. He's the one who himself rose from the dead with the promise of eternal life. All who receive him. Do that work in us today, Lord. All of, all of those that want to respond to Jesus today, either for the first time or for another time, Pray with me in the quiet of your heart to say, Dear God, thank you for sending Christ to bear in his body my sin upon the cross that I could become child of God. I am yours. Save me, Lord. Fill me. Strengthen me. I will give you all the credit. I will sing your praises. In Jesus' name, amen.